What could be bad about new technology in an emergency room? The conflict between new technology and its risks in overcrowded U.S. emergency departments. Is this an instance when less is actually more? You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Jeffrey Klein, Research Director of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Carolina's Medical Center. Welcome to the show, Dr. Klein. Larry, it's great to be here. So what's being used in the ERs? What's popping up? What's new? What's ruining your life? The single biggest change that's happened in the last 10 to 15 years has been the frequency with which we perform CT scanning as well as MRI scanning, magnetic resonance imaging, in ambulatory emergency department patients. Those are the two big ones to focus on. I assume most of our listening audience realizes that an MRI has no radiation, a CT scan does have radiation. So how many, how many CAT scans are actually getting done in an average ER each year? About 10% of all emergency department patients are now getting a CT scan. And how much radiation are we talking about from, uh, let's say, just a CT of the chest with infusion? Maybe I could, rather than quantified in terms of millisieverts, we could talk about the amount of radiation relative to the the threshold where we believe cancer risk goes up. And the thought is that one CT scan of the chest with a multi-detector scanner imparts enough radiation to significantly increase the lifetime risk of cancer. There's several papers out, one last week in JAMA, where radiation physicists, and this is not me, Others, uh, radiation physicists together with epidemiologists, estimate that a single CT scan to the chest in a 35-year-old man causes a 1 in 500 risk of a fatal cancer in a 35-year-old man. That risk is increased in women because of the effect on the breast tissue. Yeah, I had always thought it was 1 in 1,000, so 1 in 500 definitely is a little different than 1 in 1,000, so... Yeah, if we're causing more cancers just by doing unnecessary tests, I think I think we should raise our threshold for ordering CAT scans. One other point is about half of CT scans now employ intravenous contrast. Now, although we use contrast that's safe and low osmolar has a lot less impact on the kidneys, it still has an effect. And when we studied the incidence of laboratory-defined contrast nephropathy in patients that received a CT scan to evaluate for pulmonary embolism or blood clots in the lung, about 8% of patients developed laboratory-defined contrast nephropathy. And this could be bad news for their kidneys 10, 20 years down the line. Well, obviously, those are the downsides of ordering excessive CAT scans, but let's talk about the upside. Obviously, you can you can save people's lives by detecting a uh, ruptured aortic aneurysm or a ruptured ovarian cyst or an appendicitis. So how do you weigh the two? How do you handle that problem? I think we have to become more quantitative about who needs a CT scan The CT scan also makes it very easy for me as the doctor because it simplifies my decision-making. I don't have to do so much consternation, anguish in the room trying to explain to the patient that you just need to follow up if you get worse, if if your abdominal pain doesn't subside in in a day. We have to set some lines in the sand where if the patient has a low enough risk, we 
it makes sense to not order the scan. We also have to do a better job of explaining to patients that CT scans are not a free ride. Even a scan to the head increases the risk of thyroid cancer and cataracts, especially in children. Yeah, but, you know, this is the United States, Jeff, and uh, we're entitled to anything we want whenever we want it. So our patients demand that CAT scan test, and they do think that the CAT scan test is the holy grail. You're absolutely right. We have I just worked in the pediatric emergency department over the weekend, and I was faced with three sets of parents from three different children who asked me to CT their child. But when I explained to them the consequences of the radiation, a lot of the the thought processes and opinions changed in these six parents. Ended up not scanning one of the three. So that requires time on your behalf. And you're in an ER and you're running around like a chicken with his head cut off. So I would imagine a lot of doctors don't have the time to sit there and counsel the parents on the actual risks. That's right. And there's absolutely no payment mechanism for that counseling. It doesn't get built into any type of reimbursement. So you do it to be a good Samaritan. And then moreover, most doctors perceive it as they're increasing their own personal risk. So right now, there's not a lot of incentive structure to do that counseling. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell, and I'm talking today with Dr. Jeffrey Klein. Dr. Klein is the research director of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Carolina's Medical Center. We're talking about the unnecessary use at times of uh, CAT scans. Jeff, what about doing less CAT scans and doing more MRIs of the abdomen? What's the limitations of MR compared to CT in terms of looking at abdominal contents? Great thing about MRI is its degree of resolution and absence of ionizing radiation, especially for the pregnant patient. The downside to MR is its availability and time. And at present, unless you have an open MRI scanner, which is a pretty special device, we have to put a patient in a tube. And a lot of patients don't do well with it, especially if they're short of breath or scared or claustrophobic or demented. You have to put earphones in. It sounds like a jackhammer in there. A lot of them go wild, and it just requires a great deal of titration of medication to keep them under. You almost have to sit there and watch them as they get the scan done. So... Right now, it's just not ready for prime time in the emergency department setting anyway. And you know, on the TV show House, they always have a seizure every time they're in the MRI scanner. Must be all that magnetic field or something. Yeah. So what do you think is the biggest problem that's facing you on a day-to-day basis in terms of taking care of your patients? I think that the reimbursement structure is upside down. It pays me to order tests that aren't needed, and it doesn't pay me to counsel patients the way we just said. I spent two years of my own time and travel money going in front of the American Medical Association trying to lobby for a CPT code, a charge procedure terminology code, for the process of using a quantitative decision rule to obviate unnecessary testing. I was shot down twice. It was a very difficult process, but just this July 1st, I was uh, awarded we were awarded, we physicians were awarded a CPT code that will allow the potential for third-party reimbursement for using quantitative decision rules. So we're starting to move in the right direction and uh, to change toward paying for cognitive procedures.
That's great. Congratulations. I mean, I, I hope that kind of spills over to internal medicine because, once again, we don't, we don't get paid to think. We only get paid if we order tests. This code certainly can be used by internists. So what is that magic code? It right now does not have a number. It becomes in effect in January 2008, but it is now published in their July 1st CPT code manual. I definitely look forward to learning that CPT code. It's about time that we are actually reimbursed for using our brains instead of our technologies. Dr. Klein, can you talk a little bit about the problem that you see with Wall Street kind of fueling the technology pipeline and why you think that's kind of worsening the cost of healthcare. Every venture capital firm that does biotech devices, drug development, or biomarker development wants to get their thing in use by physicians. And the FDA is facing a huge pipeline of new gadgets, biomarkers, and devices that have a whole bunch of funding behind them for the the research and clinical trials needed to show a little iota of evidence for the doctor to use. Just a good simple example of this are going to be biomarkers, blood-based markers for evaluating for possible acute coronary syndrome in the chest pain patient, the adult chest pain patient. And right now we have panels of two or three different blood tests, but There's a number of industries out there backed by a ton of money that want you as the physician to consider ordering entire panels of tests, eight, nine, ten different markers. These things are just going to continue to add to the cost of health care and I think really complicate it and ultimately increase the rate of imaging and ionizing radiation. So none of these markers are really going to really be used as they were intended. They're going to they're going to be all lumped together and doctors not going to know how to interpret them and he's going to end up getting that cat scan anyways. When we use these type of panels in emergency department patients, we find the specificities are so low, meaning that the false positive rate is so high that overall the panels increase the rate at which we admit patients and do more advanced testing on chest pain patients. The money behind these tests, they don't care about that. Their issue is to prove that the test can provide some incremental increase in some parameter that's clinically relevant and then market on that parameter, get their biomarker established, and then hold lots of seminars with free food and drinks and try to convince doctors to order their tests. Jeff, I know you've you've traveled to other countries or at least been involved in researching things out of New Zealand. What's happening in the rest of the world in the emergency rooms? Is it way different than what we're doing or is, the, is technology infiltrating there also? Based on my experience, the situation in Canada is pretty close to the United States. Now, outside of Canada, Emergency departments that I've been to in France, in Switzerland, and Spain, and New Zealand, it's a good bit different than the United States because of the primary care network in those countries. In urban America, the emergency department functions as a primary caregiver. Uh, When the patient has a little chest pain, he or she can't call the doctor. They have to come to the emergency department. But in New Zealand, they first see the primary care doctor who then decides whether they need to go to the emergency department. So the underlying prevalence 
and reason why patients are in the ED in New Zealand is vastly different than it is in the United States. Whose system do you like the best of all those that you've seen? Who should we be trying to mirror? New Zealand works better there because it's an island and it's small and it's a much more liberal population that are that are willing to tolerate that no test is perfect. They, they don't demand the same perfection that many of us have been taught to believe in the United States. Is it an island with no lawyers on it? It is very difficult to recover from a medical malpractice claim. And basically there's a fund that's shared by all. So no one on a jury is interested in giving away that fund because that's kind of potentially their fund, too, if something goes wrong. So we should all be relocating to New Zealand. And the physicians there don't get paid the same as they do in the United States, but I believe their quality of life is better. Well, on that note, I would like to thank our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Klein. I'm Dr. Larry Casco, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com, and thank you for listening.